listening to The Clambake, a KBGA podcast, with your host, Madeline Broom. Thanks for tuning in to KBGA Missoula 89.9. My name is Madeline Broom, and I am the host of KBGA's newest podcast, The Clambake. Join us every week for important conversations with community members. We'll be talking about Missoula and the university's most pressing issues on this show. Last week, the International Wildlife Film Festival, which ran from April 18th to the 25th, was held completely online for the first time in its more than 40-year history. Thousands of people from around the world gathered to watch dozens of films online. I talked to Carrie Riker, the festival's art director, to learn more about the challenges and the surprising rewards of moving the festival completely online. Before moving to Missoula in 2018 to direct the Montana Film Festival, in addition to the International Wildlife Film Festival, Carrie spent six years as director of the Jackson Hole Wildlife Film Festival and has lots of experience working creatively as a freelance filmmaker, modern dancer, and mom. Later, we'll hear from filmmakers Alex Getz and Madeline Brunt. start by just describing what the festival looks like in a more typical year for people who maybe haven't had the chance to go um, or haven't been very involved in the past. Sure. Uh, Typically the International Wildlife Film Festival starts every spring. It's always in mid-April. It fluctuates, you know, by a week or so, but um, it is, you know, it's a 43-year-old festival, and it is sort of the start of spring in Missoula. So everybody comes out for the Wild Walk Parade, which is usually down Higgins, and everybody, thousands of people dress up as animals, and then we march from the X's all the way down Higgins to Karis Park, and that's how we launch the festival. And um, Our festival is held at the Roxy Theater, which is our home. We're a program of the Roxy. And um, so we take a huge amount of pride in being in such an amazing venue um, and a venue that supports, uh, you know, sustainable uh, principles like recycling and metal bowls and does their part for the environment, but also just like plays excellent movies and has like the best movie watching community ever. So this is a special week for the Roxy every spring. And um, we generally get about 3,000 kids to watch youth matinees. And then um, upwards about 9,000 people watch films at the Roxy for a week. All about wildlife. Yeah. Um, so when uh, was it kind of apparent that the transition would have to be made online um was the festival able to kind of jump on it early or i mean i don't know if anyone was able to to jump on this early because i remember it was a couple days where i was like wow this is crazy and then it seemed like there was a day where kind of everything at least in missoula shifted so um but what was that you know the decision making process like for that yeah i actually remember i it was march 16th and um, it was a thursday (laughs) Yes, it was a Thursday. And I went into the office and we had been working on our printed brochure where, you know, we've just been going through a fine tooth comb and designing everything and confirming all of our events and times and filmmakers and the film schedule. Um, And we were about to send it to the printers, which is one of our biggest costs. And um, we, we stalled for a day and I just kind of looked around and I, I do know a couple people who were sheltering in place in Italy right about then, um, which was kind of like a snapshot ahead. And I was talking to them a lot about what things were looking and it just became really apparent really fast, as you said, that um, it probably, all of the virus would probably be peaking on April 18th through the 25th, which was our festival, and that it would have been um, irresponsible for us to to have a live event like this and bring in travelers and bring in filmmakers and um, have people sit in movie theaters together. So uh, we had, I think, spent so much time and worked so hard um, 
the decision to go virtual was really easy and and happened really quick i think mostly because none of us just wanted to trash all of the work that we've been doing and postponing just seemed like um too open and too uncertain and like you know there were already too many events to fit into the summer anyway here in missoula so um we just went for it you know i think part of what made it easier was um what we do is talk about um interacting and building community around viewing media and so it just felt like we should be sort of leaders in that field and and look at it as an opportunity so we just decided to embrace it uh, I imagine you've seen a, a change in, in viewership in the audience that must be an interesting transition. But one thing, you know, looking at your website, it seems like you have transitioned um, very well to online. Um, I mean, I work for a radio station that has that has um, really tried to really kind of struggled with figuring out how to smoothly move. Um, fully remote and stuff, um, you know, so viewing a movie or DJing, you know, an hour of radio, that's a very physical <laughs> and in-person type of thing. Um, are there, were there any programs you weren't able to transition online? I did see um, you were able to transition some of the educational um, stuff online. And I wonder what kind of engagement with you know, the films and the filmmakers you've been seeing since going online and how that's changed? Yeah, um, the response on behalf of the filmmakers was incredible. So many of them were planning on coming here and um, I think they were really excited that we jumped on it. Um, IWFF is a special festival because we have really intimate relationships with our filmmakers and they were all so awesome. It took a lot of time, we basically negotiated what worked best for each film in terms of whether they had been out already quite a bit, whether they were already online somewhere, which some of them were, or you know, some of them were really new films that were about to have a big festival year and be really celebrated before they go online. So um, we negotiated each term of the films um, pretty uniquely and tried to support the filmmakers in you know whatever they needed some of them just needed some kind of ticket to be sold or some kind of password to be entered and then they could sort of make the case that it was still part of a festival screening um some of them just wanted to be accessible and free uh you know the information that these environmental and wildlife films is giving is really essential and impactful and important information for the world right now. And so I think a lot of them felt like it was a cool opportunity in that sense to just reach a huge amount of people. And then there were some films, like there's this one awesome film, Overland, that um, is really amazing, but there it's really new. It was gonna be the first time it ever screened anywhere. And um, they just couldn't uh, compromise that and make it available online. So that is something that we're hoping down the down the road, uh, we can either show at the Roxy right away and get people in front of it, or um, maybe we can have a couple special virtual events as IWFF presents in the future. But we're still trying to think out of the box and, and make it happen and, and get these films in front of people. Do you think there'll be a big rush back out to the theaters uh, and, you know, places like the Roxy once we are, you know, fully reopened. Uh, because I've heard some people say, oh, everyone will be too, like, anxious about going out, even when um, we've been given, you know, the all clear and stuff. And then others say we'll be so, like, starved for that kind of community and just even sitting next to someone without talking and stuff because right now we're be we're able to talk but not <laughs> uh, yeah. be close so do you think there will be kind of that rush back out or a way for those you know those big films that we're hoping to have a really big year like is there a chance they could make up make that up you know i have i have no idea what's going to happen and and i'm not really sure i think the roxy wants to be careful to um just make responsible decisions and, and make decisions for our community. But we are really trying to think of ways that people can interact. Um, the festival was really successful. It was kind of insane, actually. Um, our list grew 
it doubled. We got over 2,000 more subscribers. Um, we sold 1,500 passes, many to people who have never come. Um, we sold passes in 47 states and 25 different countries. So I think people were craving this kind of um, media and, and we were really careful the way that we did it. Um, it would have been easy to like sort of plug into another platform or app the way a lot of festivals have done, but we really wanted it to feel accessible and to still feel like a film festival. And part of being part of a festival is talking and, and diving deeper into the films. So we spent a huge amount of effort um, to find what we call deep dives, but to find little extras and filmmaker behind the scenes and little conversations. Um, we did Facebook Live, we did Zoom, Zoom calls, we did pre-recorded videos, we did YouTube Live. Um, we sort of did everything um, depending on whatever the filmmaker was most comfortable hosting themselves. And, um, and they were all attended like incredibly, incredibly well. I was really surprised. The response from the community, I mean, from the Missoula community, but also from sort of our international community um, was really mind boggling. I mean, it says it in our name, we're the International Wildlife Film Festival, but all of our filmmaker uh, relationships that we've had for so long, every single one of those people shared with their friends and shared with their own communities. And, and really the response, I mean, we broke the website the first night because it was so insane and so popular and everybody wanted to watch this Making Contact, this octopus film. Um, and so we had to move to a different server. We learned a lot about um, website and media handling and managing. Um, and we were supported really well by our uh, server. But uh, I, I just think the response was insane and people were looking for that kind of interaction. Um, you know, the chats afterwards and the feedback and responses we got, um, you know, we got whole letters from whole fourth grade classes or university students um, who uh, a bunch of teachers implemented the movies into their curriculum that week. And I just can't even, I'm so grateful and so amazed that it touched this many people. So I think, you know, that's a long-winded way of getting back to your question on, um, I think that we will continue, the Roxy and IWFF will just continue to try and to find those ways that people can talk about films and um, have that deeper experience instead of just like, because we're all binging Netflix, you know, I think that conversation part is really essential and that is what people are craving. How big is your staff? Because it sounds like you've all done kind of a Herculean effort. You know, I'm, I was um, imagining going into this conversation, you know, hearing about maybe like lower audience numbers and stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that you guys had such a great, such a great week. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a bare bones little mini sort of big, like the core staff is uh, Jerry Rafter, who's been with IWFF for a few years and handled all the sponsorships and all our sponsors were so supportive and awesome. Um, and she really helped them um, make sure that they felt loved and felt supported, even though their exposure that they got was awesome, but very different than what they had signed on for. Um, and then Ryan Hawk is our designer and marketing associate. And she, like, I don't think we could have done what we did without her. Um, her design sense is incredible, which you can see from the website, just like the color and the fun and the animals. It's, that it's she, a beautiful website. For it's sure. so awesome. And it's totally because of Ryan Hawk. Um, but she also, you know, conceived and built the website and we took a lot of care to make it really simple and just, you know, straight to YouTube or Vimeo watch me now links. So it didn't feel like you had to build too many logins and passwords and all and, you know, all of that I think filters it away from the direct message of the Wildlife Film Festival. Um, and she just did like a crack job. She nailed it and was so amazing to work with. 
So I think that those two people in me were sort of the uh, core staff. But the reason IWFF is really lucky is because we live inside the Roxy Theater. And so we have all the Roxy Theater staff as support to us as well. So Laura Lovo, who does memberships for us, and Tammy Bathovic, who does development, and Mike Steinberg, who's our executive director, you know, everybody sort of rallied. Um, we had an awesome education coordinator who usually runs the youth matinees at the Denison for 3,000 kids. Um, her name's Britt Garner, and she just like dove in and found curriculum and articles and uh, lesson plans to go with all the films that we would have showed to all those teachers, students. Um, and then she coordinated with all those teachers so that they could bring those, that, 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 that media into their classrooms and, and um, go a little deeper and teach their kids a little more with that support. So, I mean, the team did awesome. And I, and I think it's fair to say, it was Herculean. <laughs> we'll take it. <laughs> yeah, well, it seems like you deserved it. I mean, um, I went to watch a couple of the films and I found it, um, I found it quite easy. So um, yeah, I would say it's fairly intuitive. Um, and someone who, you know, has tr tried to design my own website and helped with some others, you know, it's not, uh, it's not always as easy as some people <laughs> may assume. Um, but yeah, and thank you for you know that thing. You know that thing where, like, to make something really simple and clean, it's like way harder than um, than to make it kind of complex and get around. So I think thank you for that. That's a testament. We were hoping it would seem really simple, and a lot more work went into it to make it seem so. Yeah, there's always um, you know a lot more work that you don't see. Um, so yeah, but that's pretty much all of the questions that I had. Um, so I wanna thank you for, for sitting down virtually um, and talking about the festival. Uh, I'll still be in Missoula, I'm a student. Um, yeah. But so I'll still be in Missoula next, next spring. So hopefully I can, uh, I can catch it in person. <laughs> yeah, you can join us. And, and I do have to say that it was, so, um, it was so successful and we reached so many people that we hadn't that we probably will start having conversations about how to have a virtual element every year, mm -hmm. um, especially when you start thinking about a festival like us who's flying guests in and the like environmental implications of that is becomes pretty heavy and it and it isn't quite the you know we're trying to walk the talk and um, so it's it, it kind of came at a certain um, pivotal point where we can maybe implement some change. And then I just wanted to like give a shout out that like all these limits and um, all these challenges and obstacles of where we are right now um, makes people think creatively and makes you um, solve problems. And, and that's kind of a powerful thing, so. Yeah, I should, I guess that does kind of um, make me wonder, yeah, like how do you see this influencing the the festival moving forward assuming that a year from now you know we're all fully opened up and not under any sort of restrictions yeah assuming we're all going strong and um back in the roxy with our popcorn balls bowls the balls um <laughs> i think that um we will probably always have a virtual part and I think remote education is becoming even bigger and bigger and bigger and we'd like to continue to plug into that and um, and we like to have a small little team that can be flexible and pay attention to what's going around in the world um, and to respond to that and I think being a festival like we are um, you know, it's sort of our obligation to respond and to think innovatively. So we're going to just keep on doing that and, and we'll see where we go next. <laughs> yeah, have to reach those people in the 25 different countries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish we had gotten all 50 states, but 47 is pretty good. <laughs> uh, pretty close. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Alex directed the film Resilience, Story of the American Red Wolf, with co-director Justin Grubb. 
Alex is a two-time Emmy-nominated wildlife and conservation filmmaker and photographer who has been recognized by National Geographic Wild as the winner of the 2016 Wild to Inspire Film Competition and is the co-founder of a production company called Running Wild Media. Alex is based in Ohio, which is where I spoke to him from. I'm Alex Getz, and yeah, I was one of the co-directors for the Resilient Story of the American Red Wolf film. Mm -hmm. Thanks for the opportunity to do this. Yeah, of course. But I was hoping we could just start maybe with a little summary of the film for uh, anybody who wasn't able to, to watch it online last week when it was available as part of the festival. Yeah, so Resilience um, is about a species of wolf that not a lot of people know exist in the United States. I think when people think about wolves, the gray wolf is kind of the first thing that pops into their head and the reintroduction efforts in Yellowstone have become um, a massive success story for conservation efforts. But not a lot of people are really aware of the story of uh, red wolves here in the United States. And so the red wolf is a species of wolf that historically lived in the southeast the southeastern United States. So you'd find them from like eastern Texas all the way over to the east coast and up into I think upwards into even like Maine. Um, and while it's it looks very different than the gray wolf um, and it's a little bit smaller it still fills that same ecological role that gray wolves did and that we have witnessed since the reintroduction in Yellowstone you know how it changes things. And so this film is really just taking a look at a species that's pretty overlooked. Um, what's happening to it today? There's less than 30 left in the wild. It's the rarest wolf in the world. And you know how efforts that started in the 60s and 70s have really impacted conservation as a whole around the world. Um, and not a lot of people know it, but the work that was done with the Red Wolf Conservation Program really influenced and helped the Gray Wolf program in Yellowstone be a success. So talks about all the partners who are working on the project now and you know what state it's in and what are the goals for the future. How'd you find this story? Because um, as you said, most people don't know about Red Wolf. So how did you how did you get the introduction? I wish that I could say that, you know, I was like digging around and stumbled upon this amazing species. But it wasn't as glamorous and sexy of a story as that. It was just my friend knew these conservation organizations who were working with the species. And they were like, we want to make a film. And he's like, my friend makes films. And that was it. And when they brought it to us, uh, myself and Justin Grubb, the co-director, um, I was like, I've never heard of the species before. I need to know everything right now. And as I started digging into the history of it, I just kind of fell in love with the story and the species as a whole. Um, and so even after the film has been done, we're still continuing to keep updated and document what's happening, so. So how long ago was it that you were first introduced to the story? I'm kind of interested in how long, how long the process uh, took. Yeah, so we started roughly two years ago and we were on and off filming for about two years. And the main reason is, is we were, we were dealing with like breeding schedules of wild wolves and wolves in captivity and captive breeding situations, um, as well as just, um, I guess, the political will and things to actually like start to happen in the field were all very like up in the air at times. And so we knocked out a pretty significant portion of the film pretty early on, but as we continued editing, more and more just kept happening. And so we had to keep filming. And IWFF was very generous in that we had actually submitted a totally different edit and they had accepted it. And then there was a pretty significant development in the story, pretty much the entire ending of the film as it is now happened in the end of February this year. 
And so we had to rush out and film it. Yeah. And then re-edit the whole film a month before it was going to air at IWFF and premiere actually for the first time ever. Um, and so they were very generous in that they let us rework the whole thing while it kind of existed already accepted in the film festival. Mm -hmm. So a lot of stuff was happening and never with much notice. Um, the ending of the film, which I don't know if you got a chance to see it. And for anybody who may be listening to this, hopefully they get a chance to see it. We only knew about two days before. And so we had to pack up and rush down to North Carolina to be able to document um, basically what turned out to be the ending and a pretty significant moment in red wolf and wolf conservation in general. Um, something that hasn't happened in well over 10 years. So, yeah. Yeah. So was, is that a long drive or is it kind of the um, filmmaker lifestyle that makes you able to, to rush down there? Cause I mean, as a, as a journalist, I understand the, you know, you rush off and stuff when things happen. Um, but I think for most people, they have a hard time imagining <laughs> that. Yeah. Ability. Um, it's not too long of a drive. I think with stops and everything, it's like 15, 16 hours. Um, <laughs> it's not great. It's not the best drive. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do this full time. I do freelance video in Toledo, Ohio when I'm not working on a documentary project. Um, but I would say majority of my work is focused on wildlife and conservation. And then some of it's commercial just when I'm between projects. So definitely having that ability to just up and drive at a short notice was necessary. Um, we had a friend who tagged along for that shoot and she had a full-time job and she had almost like two full-time jobs and she's like, I can be there for the weekend and then I have to fly back that night. And so to see everything that she had to go through to pull off getting to experience this with us, I was like, this is why I do this full-time. And so I have that flexibility to be able to just up and drive if I need to. So was the team mostly you and your co-director then? Yeah, pretty much exclusively the two of us. We would occasionally bring on like an assistant, but for the most part, it was just the two of us. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how you got the footage of the Red Wolves because it's, you know, it's, it's very close and it's very clear, high quality footage. And, you know, you mentioned, I mean, it's in the story or in the film how, you know, there's only 30 of them and they're quite secretive and even locals don't know about them. Um, so how did you get that footage? And was the nighttime footage, the stuff, is that yours as well? Because I know there's yeah. some like kind of historical and like so yeah. must be source footage as well. So yeah, we did have a, a quite a bit of historical like archival footage. Um, but going into it, we knew that trying to film the rarest wolf in the world was going to be like horribly difficult but we were ambitious and we really wanted to try. Um, so one of the things to do just as like a safety precaution was we bought a bunch of 4K trail cameras. Um, and so a lot of the wild footage of those wolves comes from those cameras. And we had actually set up these 4K trail cameras around the refuge and uh, came back three months later to just check and see what was the most active site. And then from there, we moved all the cameras to the site that we deemed the most active um, and left them out there for about six more months. But in that time, each time we would go down there, we would spend a certain amount of days just driving, sitting in blinds, like actually trying to film it with a real film camera versus on these, these game cameras. So the longest trip we did in North Carolina was 11 days. Um, we spent, between the two of us, we would sit in blinds in the morning and the evening, two different blinds. Um, and wait, I think we spent like 60 hours in that 11 days just sitting in blinds combined. Um, never saw a wolf when we were in a blind, which was unfortunate because you're just sitting there for hours. Um, but we, we were able to drive around and we just had the camera set up. So it's like if we saw one in a field, there's a few shots of them kind of at a distance, but walking through fields. Um, we would just hop out and hope that they didn't run off and try and grab some shots of them. So we were really fortunate to get some footage of them. The wolf biologists were like amazed. They told us that it wasn't going to happen, um, that some people work with these animals full time and very rarely ever even see them. Um, 
So we were very lucky. They're not like award-winning single shots, but it shows this animal in the landscape. And I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, was that kind of, did that make you nervous going in? Cause I know if I told my editor like, oh, I just don't think I'm gonna get a good shot of this, of you yeah. know, your main character, they'd be like, hmm, I don't know then. Uh, and it wasn't, I, you know, a story in your backyard where, you know, it's like easy to go out and try to make trips and stuff. Yeah, I definitely was nervous. And I think that's why we, we did the trail camera thing. Cause I, I know I had a couple of mini panic attacks where I'm like, what if we get nothing? And what footage do we have? Um, some of the shots that were like really close up shots were in um, captive breeding situations. So at facilities that were breeding these species to be released into the wild. So we were fortunately knew we always had that, but we didn't want to rely on that. Like we really did have a goal to try and film the wild ones as much as possible um, because we felt there was some value there to show these ones that are really, you know, at the forefront of the issues and misconceptions and political persecution and things like that. So we knew we had backup plans, yeah. but we were ambitious. Mm -hmm. You already kind of mentioned, you know, going into the backstory of um, kind of red wolf management and stuff like that. So did you have any kind of strategies going into explaining complex topics? Um, Cause like specifically when the, um, the scientist, I forget his name, who is describing um, ecosystems and kind of yeah. ecosystem connectivity. I think that's a really difficult, I mean, it's not that difficult. And I think the like animation that is used um, aids in understanding that, but you explain a kind of a fairly complex topic in a rather short yeah. amount of time. Um, and the whole film, you know, is rather short, but conveys a lot of information. We were definitely really concerned about that. Um, and I remember when we interviewed him, he explained it and we were like, but now explain it as if you're talking to like a first grader. So we could just boil it down to like as little as po like the most basic elements. Um, we always knew there was a challenge that, was, that we were gonna have with that and we just kind of hoped for the best. Um, so you saw the one with animations. Did you see the newest version by chance? Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, saw, I was able to see that one too. Sorry. Okay, cool, cool. So yeah, we took, we ended up taking the animations out for the film festival, the director's cut version. Yeah. Um, but in that other version that's going to be used for like a wider audience with the, the conservation organizations, they really wanted to have that animation in there. They felt that it would help. Um, and while I do still think it does, it is just a complex topic. Um, I don't know. It was, it was tough. There were definitely moments in the making of this that I was very concerned about whether we were going to get wild shots of wolves, whether we were going to be able to explain like how complex the politics behind reintroducing a large carnivore to the landscape is um, and getting buy-in from people who maybe don't know much about wolves and we need, you know, we need their people's help. And we need those people who are on the fence and maybe haven't thought about a red wolf before in North Carolina. Um, so to try and get them invested in that story was definitely challenging because there was so many moving parts. There's so many partners trying to help. Um, but then there's also a lot of politics involved and trying to navigate and not make someone angry is tough. So. Yeah, it's hard to uh, condense down what could be, you know, like feature film length yeah um into something small so then are you hoping to uh do something more with this topic you said you're um you're still following kind of the story um yeah and i mean maybe it's probably too soon with the last edit coming you know in february to know if there's if there's more there yet but um is that something you're kind of looking towards yeah i i've become really personally invested in the story and so i hope to find something that we can do we're talking to somebody about possibly being a distributor for it now, even in its short form. Um, I think that there is potential to, to squeeze an hour out of the story. I have pitched it to some networks and they're like, we don't know how you'll get an hour out of this. But as I, we've started thinking about it, I think we found an angle that might work. Um, we actually still have all of our trail cameras down there. Um, after the ending of the most recent cut, um, we wanted to be able to document the wolves 
on the landscape further. So we don't know how we'll use that footage. We have some hopes and goals. Um, but yeah, I think that we would love to expand on it and keep talking about it because it's still, the film ended and it wasn't like anything has totally changed for the better for wolves. Um, so I think there still is a lot of work that needs to be done and this is just a tool that could be in the hands of people who are trying to educate the world about wolf conservation. And so to continue getting that message out there is just so important. And I think that's kind of the burden of being a, a storyteller because you, you find the story and you, and you tell it and then you kind of have to uh, let the audience do, do the rest. <laughs> yeah, I, the most recent director's cut version of this, I sent it to some people and I'm like, we have one round of revisions on this and then we're locking it and we're putting it on the shelf and in the film festivals. And if I keep touching this and editing this, it's never gonna end. Um, so it, there is this moment where you have to just take a step back and be like, this needs to just be in the world. It's never gonna be perfect. And that's, I think, a thing that I struggle with with just art in general is like, I need to remind myself that things are never gonna be perfect, but it needs to be out there or else nothing's gonna help wolves. Yeah. So. Or at least that's not going to help wolves out. So. Yeah. I mean, I know when I'm um, editing video, and I'm not a proficient um, editor of film or of video, but, <laughs> um, you know, after a while, you all I see are the transitions, and I think of everything as the individual clips, and uh, it's really hard to, you know, without not looking at it for like a month or, you know, some really mm -hmm. long time, to be able to watch it again and, and look at it as the whole, especially when there's, you know, a strong narrative and stuff. Sometimes I'm like, just caught up in it being the individual clips. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally feel the exact same way. It's hard to take the step back to really realize what the story even looks like once you've been that deep in the, the edit of it. I know that was a challenge that we had in the beginning is, we had a whole version that was like 45 minutes. And then when somebody came back with a bunch of feedback that was going to totally change everything, I was so already mentally invested in that first version that it was hard to take a step back and really make those changes. So. And so you said it premiered at the International Wildlife Film Festival. What was it like having uh, the premiere go, go virtual? Because it isn't maybe the crowd of people or smiling faces in a theater that you had imagined. I think that having the opportunity for it to go virtual still, there was so much value in that. Um, I love the in-person connection that can come from something like this. And that's what I love about IWFF. And so I was obviously very sad that I couldn't be there to you know, have that one-on-one -on -one conversation with people who wanted to know more about wolves and to help point them in that direction. Um, because on my end, I just viewed the little view counter and you could just see it going up and I'm like, man, I would love the opportunity to talk to every single one of these people who's watching this. But my hope is that if people watched it as many times as the little view counter said that maybe we got a, even a quarter of those people invested in the story. So having that audience that IWFF has cultivated for as many years as it has, I, I think they said that it's like almost 40 years old or it is 40 years old, I can't remember. Um, I think it's like 42 or 43 maybe. Yeah. It's in the 40s. So, <laughs> for them to to adapt and make the, this an opportunity for a virtual film festival was really, I think, beneficial because there's so many amazing films and stories that were trying to be told. I think if they would have just shut it down once it wasn't a bit, it, uh, an in-person thing, um, it would have, a lot of people would have struggled to find maybe people who want to work with them or people who want to help whatever story they're telling get out into the world. So it, it was tough. I wish I could have been in Missoula, but it was awesome to still have the opportunity. So. So is there ways for people who uh, maybe weren't able to catch the film at the festival, maybe other festivals that it'll be showing at or just other opportunities to, to see it. Yeah, um, it, because this was virtual, it kind of like sort of leaked on the, the internet. So it's, it's probably out there somewhere. Um, but 
there's probably ways to find it. We're, like I mentioned, we're talking to somebody about possibly being a digital distributor for it. And if that's the case, then we'll hopefully be able to get it out to more people. Um, to be determined right now. <laughs> to be determined. We're, I need to send an email today to like firm things up. Um, hopefully things go through with that. Um, if not, it'll probably just be like public out on the internet. Um, so I don't know. This was a really roundabout way of me saying I don't know. Uh, there's going to be opportunities definitely down the road. And I hope that anybody who is interested in it um, either reaches out and we could definitely show it to them or, you know, stays in touch or follows social media pages. Conservation Centers for Species Survival will be a good one to follow or Endangered Wolf Center. They were both of the partners in this film. They'll have updates constantly about red wolf conservation. So if anybody was interested in that or Running Wild Media, our production company, we're going to keep people updated on where this is at. But it will be showing, it got accepted into Wildlife Conservation Film Festival in New York, I think in October. Um, and then we're submitting right now to a couple other film festivals. So we'll hopefully hear back about that soon too. So if people want to kind of follow along and see where it is showing next and stuff, how could they um, find you, your co-director, and, and the film generally? Yeah, so probably the best place to interact with me is on Instagram. I mean, I am on Facebook, um, but A-G-O-E-T-Z film on Instagram um, or Running Wild Media on Instagram or Facebook. And yeah, we were posting pretty consistent updates there just about projects and Red Wolf situation. And so that would be a great spot to start. And then obviously, um, feel free to like throw my email, alexmgetz at gmail.com and anywhere. And if anybody ever has any questions or wants to see it, just shoot me an email and I'd be happy to. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for sitting down here virtually. Yeah, thank you. Speaking with me. Yeah, no problem. Madeline Brunt is a young filmmaker who directed This Land, a story about illegal marijuana growing on public lands. She's a recent graduate of the University of West England Bristol's film program, and This Land was her first film. Madeline is currently based in Northern California, which is where I spoke to her from. So my name is Maddie. Uh, I produced and directed the film This Land. Um, the film follows the story of two scientists, Murad Gabriel and Greta Wengert and their team. And uh, it journeys alongside them and law enforcement uh, agents as they work to restore public lands that have been damaged by illegal marijuana cultivation. Uh, How do you find this story? Especially if you're, if you're new to the States, did you, um, you, when did you film it? So I was doing my master's in wildlife filmmaking um, back in England and I was volunteering at a wildlife film festival um, back there and I just happened to go to this talk on authentic voices, you know, in conservation storytelling given by Morgan Heim, who's a brilliant photojournalist. And I sat in and she uh, had like a whole photo series on Murad and Greta's life and work and the surrounding issue. And I just saw it. And at the time I was trying to find a film for my final film for my master's. And I was like, this is amazing. I would love to do this story, turn her photo series into a film. So um, I was like, okay, I, I, so I have to go talk to her. Uh, but there was no Q and A after the thing. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll email her. And then the next day I was in like a small screening and she just happened to be sitting in front of me. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's Morgan. I have this design, I have to talk to her. So I waited after the screening and it was like very on me, but I was like, like pounced on her after. I was like, Morgan, can I please talk to you? And then uh, she agreed to have lunch with me uh, very graciously. And I asked her if I could, you know, uh, work with her to make this film. And she really helped me along the way to like getting to know Marauding Greta and yeah. And then I filmed it last year, actually, I was flying to the States a year ago today, I think. So it's been like a full circle thing. Um, and now I live here. So, yeah. 
was it intimidating to kind of go after a story um, in a different country? Yeah, it was, but I'm also uh, half American. I'm, I'm a dual citizen, so I grew up there and I spent a year studying at Oregon State University, which is, you know, just up the coast from Northern California. So actually it was, it was kind of nice to like come back to an area that I kind of knew-ish uh, and film something there because I really love the West Coast and I wanted to do a film there and tell a story there. So I was like really grateful that I found one um, that had, you know, such a strong need to be told. Um, how long, how long were you filming? So did you have to kind of move to the States while you were, while you were doing that filming? It seems logistically daunting. Yeah, well, we had to do all the planning for the film ourselves as part of the course. We had to do like everything, like the budget, you know, the risk assessment, which was, which for my film was extensive given the chemicals and the potentially armed growers and stuff. So that took a while, but, and then I also had to plan the whole shoot. So uh, I had planned to do it in three weeks. Um, and I, which I thought was a bit ambitious too, because I had so many things I wanted to capture and I didn't know if they were going to happen. Um, and then when I was out there, I extended my flights another week. So I, the filming took place over a month. Um, and I was really lucky that so many key things that I wanted to happen happened in that month. But, you know, having a longer period of time to film, it would be amazing. And doing a longer film on it would be amazing too. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, for those who maybe weren't able to catch the film at the festival, do you want to give maybe a little, little synopsis? I think maybe that might help people uh, kind of track <laughs> the conversation. Uh, yeah, so the film follows the story of two scientists, Marad Gabriel and Greta Wengert, and they're both ecotoxicologists, um, and they work with a research team to, um, amongst other projects that they have, to really tackle the problem of um, illegal marijuana cultivation on public lands um, in California and up the coast in Oregon. Um, and my film follows them on one, one effort to reclaim an area of the forest that has been damaged by these groves. Um, the grows are um, set up by the illegal growers and they are out there for like, you know, up to six months at a time. So these sites are just, there's filled with litter, there's toxins and chemicals they use to spray on the plants to protect them from herbivory from the local wildlife. So these chemicals uh, are killing all, all the local wildlife that comes and grazes on, you know, the abundant, the abundant marijuana fields and um, they, are having a huge impact on the environment and the wildlife. So they go into these sites and clean them up. And again, my film follows them on one of these efforts to reclaim many different sites in the Shasta Trinity, the Shasta Trinity National Forest um, in California. And yeah, it follows their life um, as a couple and it follows them as scientists going into the field together. Um, it also kind of follows their team and you know the other people involved in the effort, but that's a, you know, roundabout synopsis of my film. Yeah, uh, so you said you got kind of the idea, um, you know, from the presentation at that other film festival, but what, what about the story or what about the story that you knew, you know, at that time made it kind of, oh, this is, this is a story that I want to dig more into? Oh, it was really the fact that Morgan had worked with them for so long and she was able to capture something in, in the story that was more human and more um, you know, it was like a human story about wildlife. And I, I personally find um, stories much more captivating when it's told through a human lens. And I was like, wow, like they are a couple who also work together and like they go away and do this really dangerous job. And um, I was just really captivated by her storytelling at first. And then I was like, I want to put my own, you know, stamp on this and make a film of her photo series. So it was the, it was them as a, um, as a couple and like, you know, power scientist team and also just the uh, immense impact that the issue has. Uh, I didn't expect to be filming something that was, you know, such a um, impactful and dangerous issue for my master's film, but I'm grateful that, you know, I found a way to do that. And um, yeah, it was the human story and the impact of the um, issue on a place that I really love that I got drawn to. Yeah, was it, I mean, how much experience filmmaking do you have? Um, well, I, didn't, 
I didn't want to ask like as a newbie because you know you may not yeah. feel that way. <laughs> no, uh, so yeah, I I graduated my bachelor's in biology the year before I did my master's in wildlife filmmaking, and I came off that bachelor's with like next to no experience. I had done some photography, but like I hadn't done any films yet. But I applied because I was like, wow, I would love to be a wildlife filmmaker. Like, imagine that. That's amazing. Not expecting to get in at all because I had next to no experience but um then I got in really surprisingly I was not expecting it and then over the next like yeah year and a half as as the course stretched on I it's a really intense master's course and you learn a lot in a short space of time so I feel like kind of experienced now but when I was doing my film that's like the first film I'd made that was that scale and you know uh involved so many different people and like stuff was you know riding on it so yeah this film has not much experience behind it, but hopefully I'll go into the next one with the experience from this film. Yeah, as a newer filmmaker, how did it feel taking on what seems like an ambitious project? Um, it was, yeah, it was really daunting and I didn't know what to expect at all, really. I'd spoken to Broad and Greta lots of times on Skype and stuff, but I hadn't like, you know, I was just doing the actual filming for the first time. There was no like test run, so that was really daunting to be like, wait, if they're going to do this, I want to get this shot. But then like, what if someone over there is doing something I want to film? And it was like, cause uh, yeah, but it was really great to have Morgan have the insight that she has um, having filmed with them and, you know, um, worked with them before. And she came along on part of the shoot. So that was really um, helpful to, you know, know what to expect. But if I hadn't had that, I would have been a lot more nervous and, you know, um, it was a daunting task, but I did it, and I'm glad it's, um, you know, you know, came out the way it did. Uh, was it just you filming, or did you have kind of a little crew? Um, it was just me for the whole month, but my friend Hannah Gormley, amazingly, came out to film with me for about a week, um, and she filmed the Northern Spotted Owls with me, and, um, you know, it was like doing all of the all of the photography work for me, which was so incredible that she did that. Um, and it was really fun to have her um, filming with me. So it was mainly me, but I used some footage from Morgan as well. So it's like a group effort and um, I'm glad all of the filmmakers on the team were women. It was really um, nice to have that as a, you know, first film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, was that hard because you were in situations that were quick to change or could be quick to change. Um, and as someone with more photo than video experience, but you know, photo experience, I definitely understand that feeling of, you know, I have one lens and I can capture this thing over here. And if something happens over there while I'm taking a picture of this, like I just don't get it. Yeah. Um, and so I'm wondering, did you, it sounds, I mean, it sounds like you must've, how did you plan? Uh, for something like that and how before you went out with the with the scientists into the field you know like how much pre-planning um, did you do with them if any well <laughs> yeah it, it's, it's really hard to plan something that you haven't even like had a test run like I didn't even go along on a reclamation before I went out on the one that I filmed so I had I had made a shot list so like you know close-up of hands on carbofura and bottle or like you know close-up of Greta as she looks ahead like and so I had all those which then I could think in my head I would string together into a you know full film but it was like getting them along the way that was the hard bit and I'd see like something happening I'm like oh that would be cool but like I like I'm filming this sequence over here and like I need to get a different angle so it was just kind of working through that shot list and if I if I already had like a lot of the team walking out to the site I just wouldn't film that for that day because I'm like i I've already, you know, overwhelmed myself with footage at this point. I don't need to film that anymore. I can focus on like smaller things or like different things. So there wasn't like planning for the day at all. I would just kind of be there and be like, oh, wait, that's on my shot list. Oh, that's on my shot list. That's like, you know, and, ch and checking them off as I go. Um, and there wasn't too much pre-planning with the team because they don't really know what's going to happen either. They have like their order of operations, but not like specific things like we're going to find carbofuran today you know we're going to see this animal today so uh i'd spoken to them about shots i'd like to get and they would like let me know if they found something that i might want to film but it wasn't like i was like hey guys can you all stop like can, like the whole team of 20 people stop and can i like get this angle 
it's like you got to get it in the moment it's not like I can you know uh make make the whole team stop and help me out with my filming yeah it's not it's not a scripted film (laughs) so so can't do anything like that um how was it covering a marijuana story in California where so I'm in Montana where only um medicinal is legal but I imagine the lines must be a lot grayer in California um where recreational is legal and I think the the movement for legalizing marijuana um at least right now or at least in my experience hasn't been very nuanced you know in where they're incorporating uh you know the different kinds of like how people should be growing and mm-hmm. where I haven't really heard that part of the conversation well, yeah like there's there's environmental guidelines and there's permits that you have to buy to be a legal marijuana grower and that's why these growers are illegal because they're not abiding by environmental regulations they haven't you know they don't pay taxes on this they are going into public lands that they are not allowed to you know damage and they are destroying wildlife and the environment around them to make huge profits so it's very clear this is a this is an illegal activity and it's um yeah um so people so to answer your question about filming in california it was it's interesting because when i talk to people about you know illegal marijuana um and that kind of thing they some people react like oh you're trying to like you know ban marijuana altogether that kind of reaction but it's like no no we're trying to stop illegal cultivation because illegal is great like legal helps so many people have jobs and helps the economy and helps you know this an, an area of the world have a you know big source of income but the illegal side is what we're really focusing on so that so I tried to make it clear in my film that I wasn't saying marijuana in general is bad I was saying this illegal activity is bad and it cannot be allowed to carry on yeah I thought it was really interesting because it was a side of it that I've never really thought of before and I think a lot of people um don't at least maybe young people I guess don't really think about where um the plants come from or or the impact that it has they think of it you know after it's been processed and everything and they don't they don't see those complexities I mean especially here in Montana where the the fight for legalizing recreational is still happening and so they haven't maybe pushed past into that like what does that look like yeah no exactly that's why I that's why I latched onto this film because I had lived in Oregon for a year before and it's also legal there and this kind of illegal activity also happens in Oregon and I was like how did I not know this was happening like how how can an environmental issue this huge not be as well known as it should be and especially like no one in England had heard of it obviously um and I just yeah I, I was like a shock that I didn't know about it either having studied biology in Oregon. So I was like, how has this not come up? So uh, it was a, I think it was a great opportunity for me to educate people back in the UK about it too. Um, and, you know, spread the word about, um, you know, knowing where your marijuana comes from and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, even that phrase, I mean, I could see that on a bumper sticker, know where your marijuana comes from. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> but but I, I mean, I don't think that's a topic that I've, you know, I heard about before, before I watched the film. Um, And so I wonder, how did you get interested in filmmaking when you, you know, decided to study biology for your bachelor's? Was it something that you had been looking towards or was it like, where did you pick up that interest? Um, I guess like nearing the end of my biology degree, I was like, what do I want to do? Do I want to you know, be a scientist and keep studying and do a master's and PhD in biology or go and do something else. And it was kind of scary. And I was like, oh, I don't know what I want to do. Um, I'm not sure. Like I wasn't like so taken by science that I wanted to do that, but I definitely wanted to stay in biology and conservation. And I was like, I don't know how to do this. And um, I had always loved photography and um you know I'd always been creative and I liked making things and then when I saw this master's in wildlife filmmaking I was like oh my god 
how did I not even think that could be a job, like being a wildlife filmmaker? So I saw it and I was like, that's, that's, that's what I want to do. I saw this one page and I was like, yep, I, I think I want to do that. And then I'm so glad that I applied to this master's and I did it because, you know, I think um, I'm looking forward to making more films and doing this. Um, but yeah, getting into it wasn't like I'd grown up wanting to be a wildlife filmmaker, but I'd always, you know, like wanted to do something creative and have do something that made a difference. So hopefully I can, you know, take my passion for conservation and, you know, making things and uh, make some films that help make a difference in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so was, what was the process like of um, submitting this to, to film festivals? I mean, it, it was here in, in Montana. Um, and so I imagine you, you submitted it some other places and um, yeah. I imagine this is probably your first, your first one. So that's exciting. Yeah. Uh, I, you just have to, you know, have your portfolio ready of some, of some production like shots that you got on the film. You got to have your film up online, ready to go. And, um, I, yeah, you just submit your film to festivals basically, uh, and look at when the deadlines are and make sure you're getting them all in. But, um, festivals cost a lot of money just to, you know, uh, submit your film. And as a like recently graduated student, I'm like, I got to pick which ones I want. And I submitted it to, um, the International Wildlife Film Festival because I'd, you know, seen it previous years. And I was like, dude, wouldn't it be cool if I got my film selected there? And so I submitted it hoping that I would get in, like not expecting to at all. But when I did, I was like, oh, like, that's so nice. And hopefully there's more of those moments down the road. But I, yeah, I'm, I'm waiting on a lot of, you know, um, hearing back from uh, festivals. So yeah, the process is just expensive, basically. So <laughs> yeah, that sounds like the whole whole process of um, filmmaking would be expensive. Um, wh where did your film premiere? Uh, we had a premiere of all of our films on the course. So mm -hmm. there's 15 of us or 16 of us on the course. Um, and we showed all 16 films at the Everyman Cinema in Bristol, which is, you know, a really nice cinema back in uh, our little English city. And uh, we had people from the industry come and we all got dressed up and uh, it was a really nice day just to watch all of the films that had come from all over the world. And um, we'd all like spent so long trying to make, and it was really, really amazing to have that moment to see everyone's hard work and to like discuss it with industry people and have all our parents and family there. Um, so it, it premiered back in October, um, end of October. Um, and yeah, it was really great to see them all come, come, to, come together. Yeah. What are you looking um, towards? I guess, um, you know, with filmmaking, I imagine everything's a little up in the air right now with the, with the pandemic and most people aren't trying to make new plans right now, but um, and you were probably expecting to, you know, kind of create this film and have it maybe be a little launch for yeah. your career. Um, mm -hmm. And everything's been been paused a little bit. Yeah, it has. But, you know, like, you just have to think that everyone is in this. Like, no one's, you know, uh, doing as well as they would be if this wasn't happening in filmmaking. So we're all just, you know, wait, waiting it out and hoping that, you know, when it all comes down, uh, we will be able to get back up again. But the biggest thing that impacted me about the pandemic was that I was like saving for a camera and I was almost there and I was like I'm gonna have my own camera and I can make my own films and it'll be amazing and then obviously the pandemic happens and everything kind of halts and I'm like okay my savings need to be to live now not for a you know fancy camera so once you know the pandemic kind of settles down and I could afford that camera I would love to tell more stories that you know show uh conservation conservationists at work and um, people who are dedicated to making the world a better better place and you know fixing the impact of human um, reach on the planet so I would love to do a project on wildfires in California I would love to do a project on how this pandemic has affected wildlife I'd love to you know be involved in a feature-length documentary about about uh, illegal marijuana cultivation 
you know, like a full length version of my film. I would love to do all these things. I'm looking forward to maybe that happening when this all, you know, uh, settles down. But for the meantime, we're all just writing it out and, you know, um, enjoying things like the International Wildlife Film Festival online. So, you know, we're all okay. Yeah, well, I wish you the the best of luck going forward and um, yeah, films and and being able to sit with people in theaters and stuff is something that um, that I know I'll really be looking forward to. I think you sometimes forget all the little things that you, you know, enjoy mm -hmm. about just being, I don't know, a human in the world. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so it's, it's really giving us time to ponder it. But yeah, I really enjoyed the ability to to watch some films and stuff um, at the film festival because it's not actually an event I typically have the chance to go to. Um, it's hard to, you know, fit it in my schedule. Missoula's very lucky and we have a number of film festivals. Um, we have a really strong community theater, the Roxy, which the festival's um, through. And so, but, um, so actually making it virtual, I got to see more than yeah. um, I maybe would in a typical year, but, um, but I understand that it's uh, hard to continue creatively uh, when you're, when you're working right yeah, now. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, well, thank you so much for talking with me yeah thank you for having me it was really nice to meet you yeah um if anyone wants to find you um online so that they can uh kind of keep their i don't know what i'm trying to say but you know see if you what you create in the future um where would they find you um probably the best place to follow anything i'm doing is on instagram um so my instagram is madeline rifka and i you know post about any projects I'm doing on there at the minute it's just this film but we'll see what comes up next and um yeah that's where you could find me okay. um and the film is available online for free still I'm going to keep it free for you know the rest of the pandemic just in case someone's at home and they want to learn about illegal marijuana cultivation mm -hmm. so. so where would they go to find that I do believe it's on Vimeo it's on Vimeo. The link is on my Instagram bio. And uh, if you just Google, I think this land Vimeo, it should come up um, somewhere. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, yeah. Have a good day. If you're interested in learning more about the International Wildlife Film Festival, check out their website at wildlifefilms.org. Thanks for tuning in. New episodes will be dropping every week. You can listen to The Clambake on air by tuning into KBGA 89.9 Missoula, going online at kbga.org, or listening to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This episode was edited and produced by me, your host, Madeline Broom, Special thanks to Jazar for the music used in the clambake. All music was sourced from the Free Music Archive.